Thanks for joining She Makes Chicago and welcome to our podcast highlighting the women makers and entrepreneurs who create our city. Go ahead and join me in pouring yourself a glass of wine as I cannot express enough just how inspiring this interview was. It was our great fortune to be hosted by contemporary artist Cheryl Pope in her beautiful Chicago home, an artist's dream sanctuary designed as a bohemian refuge dedicated to the quiet pause of gratitude. Cheryl is a true Chicagoan with a deep-rooted awareness of community and a passion for social justice. Her practice as an interdisciplinary artist sheds light on issues of identity politics as they relate to both the individual experience and the community at large. When she isn't in her studio, she is a professor teaching sculpture at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I think it's important to note that much like many successful women in this industry, Cheryl has built a reputation on the backbone of strength. Yet, it is the warmth and vulnerability of her concerned disposition that keeps her grounded and approachable in the heart of her work. Work that doesn't just shed light on social problems as a spectator, but engages the individuals experiencing these issues in a way that activates our community. Her ability to not only hear, but truly listen is the very magic, breathing meaning into her making. So let's cheers as we soak up the opportunity to listen to the listener herself, Cheryl Pope. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about your practice, like what it's been like for you or maybe just your background of like where it began and where you're at now? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think it, the roots of it are really, I guess, would start in high school. Um, I think, like, I've always started with, like, the paper and the pen and then with fashion and in terms of dress because that's really where the two, like, kind of areas of free expression. It was like you could style yourself and kind of control your identity that way. And then the paper was always like, it was just a place to vent. It was like a free space. You could say whatever. It was a private space. Um, And I think that privacy was really important to it. And that it would just hold anything that you wanted, that you needed to get out. And you could, it was easy to discard or easy to keep. Um, And those were the two kind of available forms. So I think that's why going into college like moving towards fashion really was a place because of you know that way of understanding and communicating with each other was the first thing that we saw but I did go to five colleges I only list one on my resume but it was really a lot of searching through identity so I'm from Chicago um, suburbs, southwest suburbs, which was like rural when I was young until like junior high, and then it became more of like a suburb. But I grew up across the street from like 12 miles of forest preserve, so it was really <clears throat> a lot more of um, being like outside, being in nature. So really, I come more from that than I come from the city. But I went to University of Iowa for three days, which I don't count. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't fit in there. <laughs> it's not gonna work. <laughs> And then I went to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is a very traditional school. And then the Museum of Fine Arts School in Boston. And then Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. And then made it back to um, 
Chicago, and then there was Moraine Valley Community College that was like at the beginning of it. So, and then studied fashion and kind of sculpture at um, the School of the Art Institute. And then from there, my first job outside of it was working with the James Jordan Boys and Girls Club and then After School Matters. And both of those were really pivotal because it was really my way of kind of landing within the communities, weaving within the communities of the city. So the um, After School Matters was when they had Block 37. So it was like downtown, it was the summer program, and it was kids from all over the city that would come down, we'd spend the day outside. It was awesome. We were like dyeing fabrics. It was just like being like in farm camp, but like... In the middle of a major city. (laughs) (laughs) And people could like walk through and talk to the students and... You know, they were getting paid, so it was like a job for them. And I loved that program, you know. And, and so then I, I stayed working with After School Matters from 2003 to, like, 2007. And then the James Jordan Boys and Girls Club um, also was really informative because that was um, located it's right by the United Center. And at that time in 2000, like, three to six the average annual income for houses there was $9,000 a year. So it was really a wake-up call to me to have really like it, like face-to-face where it, was, it no longer was just like a statistic number of an economical means, but that it was like understanding more intimately the lives of the families, of the young people, and it was a real wake-up call, even with the like the school. So I would go to the schools to pick up the young people, and there's no toilet paper in the bathrooms. There's no doors on the toilet or on the um, bathroom stalls. You know, all the metal detectors. Mm-hmm. And it was that was just that was not where I was from in, in the suburbs. And so when I was seeing that and seeing that was experienced for like five years, starting at five years old on it just rattled my soul you know no soap to wash your hands like it just I mean the no toilet paper thing especially it just like it lived in me mm-hmm. and then with a lot of the young men that I spent time with was talking with them and they their expression to me of their future was to be an NBA player and then if I asked them like about them playing on the high school team like they were not playing on the team so there was this like mixed mathematics here of of like living a ghost dream in a sense it was like naming a trail because that was one that they could point at even though it made no sense to their own feet a real disconnect total disconnect Mm -hmm. you know and so it was like to me it was like okay so this is you know 2004 and everybody's thinking that's like this like hoop dreams was like from like the 80s and the 90s and that's like a you know a, a dead story now nobody's still chasing that but I was like, this is still our conversation. This is still the minimal exposure that these young people have, that it's like, it's, you know, and that's when, once I went into grad school, that was the, um, a lot of the conversation that I wanted to bring back to the table and bring it back to an elitist audience of saying, you know, you guys have, have swept these narratives away as if they don't still exist, but they're very much the narratives that are still you know, on the ground that are being lived. So that's really was part of when that started coming into sports and, and um, using basketball, the language, like imagery of basketball to kind of start to bring those conversations forward. 
I can keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. So since then, and then you had, you experienced the grad program, right? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was... But your work now is so different from fashion, so... I know, and even when I was in the fashion for the grad program, it was never... I mean, I did one collection because I had to, Mm -hmm. but all of it was, like, it really gave me an opportunity to start, um, like, once I I made this jump into using the basketball as, like, a language, it just, it started to you know, tumble open into thinking about the individual and the team and really looking at community then that like you have like on a basketball court, you have that individual, but they're not anything without the team, but we still need their, um, that their individuality with it. Uh, and so that led me into doing the, um, championship banner project, which really, that one stayed the longest. It was really the most mobile in terms of being able to bring it to different communities. And that's, I worked with um, a co-colleague of mine who's a teacher at um, Lindblom High School. And that's actually, it's in Inglewood. Um, but my grandmother went to school there. So it's also interesting because it shows kind of how neighborhoods in Chicago shift mm-hmm. and move over time. And, um, so my she was she went to high school there. My other family was from like Taylor Street, like Italian. And so there's you know, I grew up with a lot of those narratives between conflict between especially between blacks and Italians in Chicago. So those narratives were always there. And then um, so race issues were always there. So when I was young, it was always, um, like a lot of times in lectures, young people ask me like, why do you care? How did you kind of get into this? And all I know is that when I was young, it felt wrong. You know, when I could, like my father used the N word and he hated my laugh and I hated when he used the N word. So I wrote a contract when I was in third grade that said I would stop laughing if he stopped using the N word and we both signed it and that worked. You know, so it was just like those kind of justice were, seeking justice were natural instincts that is like, I don't know, it's just in your, in the blood. And then the second part was that I was raised Baptist and um, my parents were very involved with the church and they were, my father was the basketball coach and I was the stack girl and no girls were allowed to play. And the, we had a good team, but the best team that we played was an all black team. And I remember that when we we would always be, my dad would be so hyped up. It was the most competitive. Like, that was the, the game. Like, that was, the, the, there was an intensity there. But what intensity wasn't there was any issue of race. Like, when I was there on the court with my dad, there was, like, it was, like, night and day. He had so much respect. He glorified these players. There was, you know, the N-word was never used. Like, none of those racial issues that he ex- would express off of the court existed there so somehow that space always lived on me within me that like that was a a place of equality that race didn't exist of course race does exist within you know and there's a great um video that's actually available on youtube that is traces the history of african-american athlete in the u.s which i highly recommend Um, we could maybe add that to that Mm -hmm. unless you were talking about and when you, you know, so it's also learning how you can follow the history of um, 
racial inequality through just following the history of sports in the U.S. So um, all of those kinds of are like feeders into why it made sense to be like working within that realm. And then with Lindblom High School, there was one class and I asked them for one truth and one lie. And I had never met them before. So I received about 150 of those and I had money of my own to produce 20 banners. So I didn't make those by hand. I worked with a um, scholastic collegiate company because what I wanted was that they looked really believable. They looked authentic. It didn't look like crafty, handmade, mm-hmm. you know, mumble jumble. Um, and so those, I picked 20 of those that dealt with around the body, whether it was like I kind of put it into sections of like the physical body, the interior, the family, um, a labeled body. And then those banners were installed in the gym. And that was the first time I got to meet the students was in that space and we got to talk about them and it was so and awesome. And they were seeing their words reflected yes. in a way they've never seen before. They were like hung up, raised, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, they were these elevated voices and it, it, I was so curious to know whether they would claim like, oh, I said that one or not because they were given to me in private, you know, they didn't have to say their name and they didn't have to identify which was which. And it was awesome because the whole, this team identity really blossomed immediately that they were like, this could be any of us. Like I could feel like that. I could mm-hmm. feel like that. And no one took a claim of verbally, you know, outright in front of the group, which one was theirs. And that's when it was really like that power of this we that came in, in terms of like that willingness to make like towards change. Um, and then it was great because then it was also inviting the community and like one of them, for example, said, I am gay. You would not come out in that school or in that neighborhood. You know, I think it was even a year later, two women who were walking down the street as a couple were beat brutally for being gay in that neighborhood. And that was like 2012, not long ago. So it was really, you know, courageous that the players were willing, the school was willing the faculty were willing and then that the community came in and played under um, a, a spectrum of, of identities really elevated and championed. Did you select only truths or was it a combination of truths? It was a combination. Like, I mean, there was one young woman who wrote, um, I'm that girl whose future scares her and I'm that girl with no future. So like that coupling of like the, you know, the truth and the lie, like just that subtle phrasing on it. Um, and you had no idea which one was actually felt. No, I know. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was really, it was really magical. And, the, and um, yeah, and then those banners, it was great because then those were actually shown in Germany. Um, they were shown at... Um, I worked with the Poetry Foundation and they produced them really large. And so those were actually at um, the Poetry Foundation. They were at the Cultural Center. So for like years later, that I mean, that was up till 2017, their voices were like still being spread and heard. That's awesome. That's amazing. That kind of, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I was thinking about with your work is like how you have shown in some pretty major institutions. Um, but you're taking a piece of Chicago and like our community and the things that Chicagoans face and you're putting out the, out there. And that's something that I think most people don't get the opportunity to do. But there are issues that 
are going on. I mean, it's interesting that you showed that in Germany. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's not just Chicago. It's, like I wonder it's if it's America. a message that resounds, totally. or if it's something mm-hmm. that's completely like shocking and eye opening. You know about the place that says it's the best place in the world. You know, mm-hmm. and then our citizens, like specifically our children, feel that way. No, I think it's really, I think it does, like, it transfers, you know, into, in there, we, I think we try to isolate, you know, the news tries to really, like, isolate Chicago as just this, like, dominant place experiencing it, but it is experienced throughout the United mm-hmm. States, you know, and I think in, in ways in other countries, um, you know, it's not, the, the gun doesn't have as much power, but the mm-hmm. violence is still present. And like the racism is still present mm-hmm. and an experience of inequality or unjust is still present. So I think, you know, alleviating just the gun narrative out of it that gets so hyped up in Chicago, you know, the, those experiences are worldwide. Mm-hmm. So was this back in 2012 that it launched? 2011. Okay. Yeah. And so that was probably, were you just coming out of grad school? It was like, I came out of grad school in 2012. Okay. How did you navigate all of this then? Yeah, being a student and, you know, getting into... Being an emerging artist and finding institutions or talking to them. I always tell my students not to, like, I ask, Mm -hmm. which is the, like, you're told not to do in the art world. It's always like... You know, oh, curators want to find you, or galleries want to—they want to be the ones to like discover or um, that kind of thing. But I mean, I would say it's always taking every opportunity like super serious, like annoyingly, kind of psychopathically serious. It's like—I mean, I remember. The, um, you, the, on the seventh floor of, of Sullivan at SEIC, you get there's those large display cases, mm-hmm. and they're literally just like a display case behind glass with like a foot. And as a grad student, you have to fill that. And I took it as if I was like having this solo show, like super, super serious. And there was um, uh, someone, uh, Carolina Wheat and Liz Nielsen, who work who worked at that time. Um, in administration they got off the elevator and saw it and they were like that's what we would want our booth to look like and so they contacted me and then they loved another piece and they showed it at when it used to be like whatever art chicago in like april mm-hmm. and then there was a gallery from miami walking through there and they saw the work and then put that work in a group show but it was kind of like taking that base so serious then they got to see it then someone else got to see it so I think it does happen that way and then they had offered they had like a in Miami they had a um a solo an artist set up for a solo show who canceled kind of last minute and called me and like offered me a solo show and I said yes of course it was like a month away I was like of course I'm saying and you had no idea how anything was gonna work out (laughs) and then I was working for Nick Cave at the time and he was like girl please you're not doing that like there's no way you're gonna put together (laughs) a solo show in a month and he was like you have to tell them no and I was like low-key you're right like there's no way I could do it in a month I'm working full-time like it just couldn't happen and I can't put myself out there and not ready. And so like I, you know, revved myself up for the call 
And I was like, I can't do it. Like, I want to give my best and I want you guys to like be best represented. And they really respected that that was my choice. And then they, so it was supposed to be in February and they gave me then the September spot, which is the best spot. So then that happened. And then I had kind of had some, you know, some documentation, the work did well there. And then with like Monique uh, Malash Gallery that I work with here, she put the banners up um, in her like project window space. So it was like a good fit. It made sense for the neighborhood. And then I enjoyed working with her in that. And then I was like, I would, it was my goal in undergrad to like want to show with, in grad school to want to show with her, to be represented by her. So when I, I, um, when I had quit working for, Nick, I bought a muscle car. <laughs> I was like, the time is now. I gotta like focus on my dreams. So I got a muscle car on Craigslist. Yes, <laughs> which manifesting, is a, <laughs> which is another great story. And um, then I, when I was driving that around, it was like it was so easy to make friends with people. You know, so many people come up and be like, "Oh, what kind of car is that?" And I had one in this year, and so I realized it was like this great vehicle of communication. Because we like people who wouldn't we wouldn't interface in any other way but because of that car. And then I made friends with some other guys with the cars. So that became an, an art piece I did later, but I was like, you know what, I want to do something with this. So I like called Monique and was like, Can I have 20 minutes of your time? Just, you know, and I'll pick you up. So I pick her up, and of course she walks out and sees this like muscle car. <laughs> She's like, What? I was like, get in, we're going for a ride. And I was like, <laughs> I want to do a show that talks about kind of, you know the disparity between neighborhoods, how there's these invisible lines. Like she was right on the cusp between Wicker Park and Hummel Park. Mm -hmm. And so like you cross over Western and all of a sudden it's like predominantly Puerto Rican and you come back on the east side of Western and it's like a total different. It's either streets or viaducts actually split up our city. Totally. And I was like, I wanted, you know, and she was so based on kind of that experience, like I asked her for show and she was like, yes, let's do it. You know, she just jumped in and then by, I really went all out again with it. And then she could see like that work ethic and that passion and then offered representation. So I think it's a, um, it's making that kind of, you know, that commitment visible too. you know, even with the gallery in Miami, there was like paint splatters all over the store floor and that. And I was like on my hands and knees with a razor, like scraping them all off. Like this is going to be perfect. Like, I don't care if it's my time and not my space, you know, but it's, or the same thing with like the poetry foundation. I think it's like making, doing research to like, that it makes sense. Like once there was so much, you know, it evolved. I was doing so much work with spoken word with young people. That was, you know, really a passion of the city, and that here's this, you know, poetry foundation. It's like one of its kind. It's internationally recognized. It's an entire library just filled with poetry. It's stupid, you know, and it's like this beautiful building. It's for free. They do, you know, free public readings, all this stuff. And it's like we have poets all over the city who have no idea that this exists. Or to be able to even like, again, you know, like you, the NBA isn't it, like, hear you is what it means to be an author like these are all your peers these are all your people you know and so I went to them and said like this is the work like I have all of this work done this is the projects I want to do and I want to share this space with young people and they immediately were like yes Mm -hmm. and then I could develop programming um you know that we we launched all over the summer so it was like with poetry as self-defense like we had self or I did a workshop where it's like 
a self-defense team taught young people literal self-defense and then we would do writing where like the poetry was the self-defense. So it sounds against the art world thing of asking. I always just ask. (laughs) And they're not always yeses. Like I asked a gallery in New York and like it was a no. Okay. It's like Maya Angelou when she's just like, thank you. There's something better for me. You just weren't it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They can you... only say no. Totally. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I feel like we're kind of going in a timeline order, but we've talked a lot about race, but some of your work is about, like, gender issues also. Mm-hmm. And I really... I know you brought up uh, the gallery that you're represented by, and it's woman-owned. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your experience as a woman in this space as an artist. Yeah, that's been really important to me. I mean, it's even, like, with the, the gallery that I did ask in New York is woman-owned. You know, mm-hmm. my friend Carolina Wheat, who she owns a gallery, Elijah Wheat showroom. She was this first one, you know, I was like, when we talk about it, I'm like, I want to find like a woman owned, you know, like how do we get women making money more with this? And there are a good amount of, um, gallerists and gallery owners, you know, that are, that are women. Um, but I think being a woman artist is still an issue. You know, I was saying to Kylie, I was listening to, um, Helen Molesworth did like a, a series eight, female artists for the Getty Museum, like kind of in talking about like in the 60s, 70s, their experience as like a female artist. And, you know, the um, SAIC alumni does like a kind of review of what artists are making to kind of understand what's happening with their alumni. And if, if me and a man had like the same kind of CV equivalent of you know, success and accomplishments, his work would still be selling for 10,000 more than buying, mm-hmm. you know, and even at my age right now, like I'm at the cusp of disappearing, you know, it's like, because it's, um, you know, kind of like your twenties and your thirties, you're still seeing it's like as, as much as we want to think of the art world as more liberal and mindful of ageism and that we're not, And so that's why a lot of times I think still today we hear that like, you know, women who are reemerging or they're like rediscovering are women in their 60s, their 70s, their 80s, like will kind of let you back in. But there's that natural ghost period of like the 40s and the 50s where you're no longer like a hot commodity. You're going through menopause, you know, like they just they mark that as our way out. You know, Mm -hmm. even the New York Times did a... um, article that was like out of all the discrepancies that we have in terms of higher and job employment the hardest and for is for a woman like from 55 on to find employment of any color of any mm-hmm. you know any identity um so I think you know we're not there yet and it's it is real and it's um in the same way that like paintings are still what sells, that's still what we have at the auction. You know, we're not mm-hmm. as as broad of, of it with it. And I think the way that I am processing it is um, it changes on different days. You know, some days I'm just like, 
it's it's easy going and it's just like okay that this is just how it is and other days it's like I want to be like the fighter or frustrated with it um it still feels like a boys club you know and it's been I was a tomboy you know my whole life and I think it was always because I recognized that men have power and it was kind of always trying to identify myself with that to have the power like it's stupid, but even I'm playing on a co-ed basketball team right now. And when I guard a girl, like, I just don't care about stealing the ball because I don't get power from it. But if I steal the ball from a guy or if I block his shot, like, I just got some mad power. <laughs> and it was the same thing with boxing. Like, I didn't want to hit a girl. Like, when you compete, you have to hit girls. But the rest, of, I only hit women when... I competed. Otherwise, I always only sparred with men mm-hmm. because it was a way for me to claim power, to claim There's respect. There's like a power exchange mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, because no, if you can beat up a girl, nobody cares. If you steal the ball from a girl, nobody cares. The WNBA, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, and that's still the same thing in the, in the art world. Absolutely. What is it like then? Because earlier you were saying, you know, you're mentoring somebody, but you're kind of fostering these relationships like with your gallery, right? It's woman owned, like that's really important to Mm -hmm. you. And even seeking, um, you know, like a show in New York with a female owned gallery. Um, What is important to you in being a mentor? Um, Being realistic, you know, in terms of what are some of the challenges you know, the anxiety that can come with it. What are the, um, you know, I, I was really, I drove my career forward first, you know, before I would look to like have a family or have a partner because it was like, okay, if I'm on this path of, um, it, there's no regulation in our industry, you know, like, we just make it up you know it's like even a friend of mine who was working at a New York gallery and got pregnant and I say it's Jack Shaman because she reported it in the in like art news did an article on it she named it um but there was no maternity leave in place you know because usually the time these gallery girls then when they're there like they, they get pregnant they move someone comes in and like HR doesn't even have to deal with maternity leave but like in 2000 19 to not have maternity leave at a blue chip gallery and that it's like it's insane you know so it's there's just no and that's even them having hr you know like we go into these smaller businesses businesses. there is no hr no you have a boss and that's it totally Mm -hmm. and at the end of it like it's a it's a business partnership like Mm -hmm. she has a business my gallery has a business and I have a business and we are business partners and she has, you know, 10 business partner relationships. Mm-hmm. So even then, you know, there, when, if she wants to add on an artist, you know, she's just adding on an artist. Other galleries might say, okay, we're going to talk with, which none of them really do this, but they could say, let's talk with our team of 10 artists and see if we all agree that this artist makes sense to bring on. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but there's no rules Mm-hmm. things just get made up they get decided and then it becomes a game of like he said she said or this is how it goes and you have to follow like these are the rules of the art world mm-hmm. and then you're at, at, at one time at one moment you're equal because it's a 50 50 share of an object but then when when there's all of a sudden like a rule or how something an agreement's going to play out you kind of fall 
under the power mm-hmm. because you need to have that representation. So it's such a finicky, tricky game to kind of navigate. Yeah. And that's where a lot, like with the sports, I also use it because it's similar to how you get traded, players get traded or drafted between teams and you just have to like relocate or, you know, there's a bit of instability for them too. They at least have contracts, you know, like mm-hmm. there's no contracts, like things can just close, like, um, what is it? Um, Shane Campbell closed in September and a friend of mine was supposed to have a show there in December, you know? So it's like, you're producing all this work and it's just... And spending money producing it. Totally. Because it's like, the other thing is like, there's no, you know, like when I, anybody outside of the art world just is like, you know, like with the guys at the boxing gym, that's like, they immediately want to solve the problem. They're just like, how do we get rid of the middleman? Like, why are you giving 50% Uh to somebody, you know, or like, and they're assuming like, okay, so they give you money to produce the work. And it's like, no, like you pay to produce the work and then you hope something sells and then you hope you get a check within a couple months they're like what like (laughs) none of them you know it's like it's a business model nobody would sign up for let's talk about this because especially in the fine art world nobody talks about money at all or like the exchange of money or even like you're talking about waiting for it um what is it like to you know and how do you working as a full-time artist like fund your own practice and like what kind of sacrifices does that take yeah, I mean, I think it takes it's a, it takes a lot of a specific situation. You know, it's like I've been telling my students that if it's, you know, how many things line up, like I got a full ride for grad school, you know, and that was huge because then I don't have student loans to be paying for. Um, when I was in undergrad, my all my grandparents passed and I received inheritance from them. The market was incredible from... 2000 to 2007 and so I was able to like double that money and then when it crashed then I was able to invest in a place so then that you know and then it was a place that could also be my studio and my home you know and then I had a relationship at the time so then that also cut that but you know bill in in half and then um you know my parents have money for their retirement they're healthy so I'm not having to care for them or I don't have to worry about you know how do I have enough money to to pay for my parents as they age you know those are all real questions you know Mm -hmm. my siblings Mm -hmm. they have money so that you know they whatever they would be able to be supportive in that way or support each other if Mm -hmm. that was needed or something so I think even you know all of those were really specific that gave me also confidence to continue to take risks, you know, mm-hmm. alongside that I love, you know, teaching is it rooted in me. I've worked with young people, you know, from the very beginning, I started teaching when I was 14. And so that those two paths could go together and that it was like, you know, I could, um, like it was a big deal if I would be like, I'm just going to splurge tonight and go get like pad thai for $7, you know? And it was, um, yeah, I think it was like living with lower, being okay with living with lower quality of life because you are, you know, working within your, for your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's, a, there is an anxiety, you know, this is the, like I worked really hard to get a full-time 10 year position but even in higher ed now 
that's not even the same as it was. Like you could be a tinier, but tinier is going to fade out because it's not, they can't justify, you know, not questioning somebody for the rest of their life with so many of the issues that are coming up. Um, and there's no contract there. They're just putting contracts in place now for like part-time at, at the school. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of navigating and it's hard to, it's like, you know, up until 2000, when I got the full-time job in 2015, I always had three or four jobs. Mm-hmm. Cause even then when I was boxing, it was like, I was cleaning the gym for free so I could have, you know, have membership there. And then I was teaching and training you know, while I was there, still working at two after-school programs and teaching at the school. So it's, you know, the sacrifice, I think, and what I experienced with it, too, is, like, um, a lot of disconnect where, like, my... And maybe that's partly why my work became so much about community because it's lonely at the same time, you know, and it was, like, a disconnect from friends, disconnect from family. I didn't have time for, like, a love relationship. And that went alongside with the kind of, um, I would say also with being a woman because it was like, I wanted to establish my career enough before trying to have family or anything. So that way, if somebody walked out on me, like I still was good. Like I was not dependent. Like I had a career, I had everything and you can vanish and like, we're fine. But that took until, you know, 2015, 16 to get to that point. And then you're close to disappearing, you know, mm-hmm. mid thirties. <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> you can cannot win. I was like, yeah. I'm like, the equation is not computing right now. No, totally it's not. Such slim margins of time mm-hmm. that they really allow for you to be successful or to have it all, right? Yes, mm-hmm. I yeah, yeah. And I think it is like, yeah, I think the whole within the women's liberation movement the whole having it all I don't I'm not sure I agree with it you know like I think it's I think we do have to pick and choose yeah. mm-hmm. because otherwise we, like we just run ourselves ragged like a shell yeah. of a person yeah yeah um no I mean I 100% agree and so I also wanted to touch on because you're talking about so much of community and we talked about it with um, after school programs. And I mean, I remember I was in undergrad watching you teach. I think you were still in grad school and you were teaching continuing ed and you were always doing like a million things and you worked with the MCA also. Uh-huh. Um, but what, how does all of that like transfer over to your work with women from Rikers? I wanted to ask about that because it's something that you never really hear about and there's such a stigma. Yeah, it was such an amazing experience. I feel like there's some kind of like angels that are with me that let me have these opportunities that are don't make sense because it was again like I just asked there was I met um a woman m- my best friend is this amazing 83 year old woman who lives on the other side of the building she has this incredible outsider art collection and I think like it's also I'm around so many older women who are single like she got divorced like 45 years ago um the woman who I know from her is another a single woman in her late 60s 
so I've seen I'm around so many examples of women also who are just like fuck it like so much better on our own <laughs> um, but she was friends with this woman who worked at Rikers and when I met her I was just like I would you know I had done work at the White House with the juvenile about the juvenile judicial system um, and had voices from um, it was during the Obama um, era and I asked a juvenile school judicial school in uh DC if I could get as the principal like if I'm doing this project at the White House around this and it's like I don't feel right just like walking in there like and speaking about it I've never experienced it is it possible for the young people there to contribute their any voices they would want to have seen and heard in the White House around you know their experience and like it happened so that which again shouldn't have really happened you know (laughs) because there was no I mean she could have pulled out any they didn't want out of the scans to me I don't know but I got a huge pile of them that was then able to use there and then you know it was just that's such a uh, a root level of the complication within the system so being within neighborhoods being with the violence you know it was really like active research hearing understanding the weavings the networks um, and of course that's such a you know like talking about it as a pipeline that's such like uh, a, a disruption in, in a system mm-hmm. that's, that needs to be examined and looked at. And so then um, I always want to just get closer to within the experiences. And so when I asked this woman if I could teach a fashion class in Rikers, the, the um, I forget what they called the person now, but who was in charge of that ward at that time, somehow loved fashion. So he was like, accepted it. And then I, I bought two sewing machines to donate and... Um, and then went there and did it. And the first group of women I had, like it was eight women who were all pregnant and they were about the same. They all had boys and they were <laughs> expecting the same time. And I was just like, you know, my only rule was like, don't have a baby in here because not during our time because it's really complicated because they still have to be, when the ambulance comes, they still have to be like strapped in and locked up. So the the jail is really lax on even like doing it because everybody it's a nightmare it was really um the time the time and the the engagement I had with the women was remarkable you know and it was they were so grateful to be there they felt so empowered with the skill and there was like like they didn't I didn't know until afterwards but there was like conflict between there's kind of like two clicks and they like made the whole thing click because they knew they couldn't have it and you know it had to work out for everybody yes so there's that team that we yes that like came in through the room and it was just awesome you know and it was like this doesn't really matter but I always thought it was so sweet that it was like we talked about they wanted me to bring food in and like I, I was like I'm all about breaking the rules like I'm in here with needles scissors and sewing machines you guys <laughs> <laughs> you know and it was like I mean I had to count the needles like if a needle went mm-hmm. missing it was like a needle in a haystack like shit was gonna go down but the sweetest thing was that the only thing they all wanted was like a bagel and cream cheese unanimously it's like they could have dreamed of anything and like it's such like a basic all they wanted was like a bagel and cream cheese because even being pregnant you don't get more food there so you still only get i mean can you imagine so they're just like hungry. hungry they're just hungry so it was it was wild you know and then even when I went back, it was like that first time went smooth. And the next time it was like the staff actually were making it really complicated because they didn't think that these people should have 
opportunities while they're there. Wow. And it's hard because it was, you know, it was majority black and brown staff and majority black and brown inmates. But there was then like these levels, dif- different worlds. It is a world. It is a whole system. It is there is a whole network, and um, they did let me in, but there is still so much that I don't know. Yeah, and it's really. I mean, that's really strange. Just the impact of judgment, basically. And you were really just giving them empowerment. It was incredible. Them, yeah, I mean, they were. You were giving them hope. It wasn't. We just had like. It was just positive attention. Like, we were just, like, in the room. They didn't want to leave. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and it was gentle, you know? Like, we just figured it out. And it was it was really sweet because we made... Um, I'm not thinking of the name right now, but it's an... Uh, it's a, from East Africa, and it's going to come to me. And um, I had a lot of examples of a friend of mine lived out there for seven years. And there's basically, like, text on it. And it's the way women in East Africa communicate with each other. So, like, you can, if I wanted to celebrate your wedding, I would buy um, these two cloths and then you could, would wear them. But I could also, if you were my neighbor and I was mad at you, I could go and be, get one where, like, it, it, the quote may say, it's easier to live next to an elephant than a snake. Because <laughs> you can't really talk direct there, but, like, um, the word was almost there. You, can, you talk through the, through the fabric. So it was interesting because then we get, you know, there's so many ways of like speaking there, even that, you know, we have all these different ways of speaking without words or with our dress. And so they could either make it the cloth for their baby or they can make it for themselves. And they had so much fun making it with swords. They'd be like, this is for me. They're like, then they feel bad. They're like, no, it is for the baby. (laughs) Switch it back. So, but it was awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything that we didn't cover. This has been really great. This has been it organic, is. which is nice. Let's talk about money. Yeah. Okay. We kind of did, but it's kind like... Of. That's one thing I... W- yeah, so when you were saying, like, about how you give, um, you know, almost half of your profit to the gallery, um, do you mark your prices up? Like, what is the, is that something you account for when you price the work so that you get paid what you should be getting paid or is there like a model for that that's again where it's like finicky so it's you know the gallery and the artist decide on the price together which really kind of means the gallery decides the price so we can battle it you know like I can ask them like I think we should raise the prices and then we can discuss why or why not mm-hmm. um but again that there's no infrastructure for it so like I have like a grad student who you know that I mentioned messaged me and was like do you think how much do you think I should ask for these you know and I'm kind of like well send me your CV let's see what that kind of looks like and then we can you know we kind of try to find maybe somebody similar you think about the scale you know there's an old school equation that they used to do I don't even remember it with like the size of the painting and then they would like something you know but it doesn't matter anymore you know but it's um so you also don't really have that power there to like name your price but I always keep like a budget of what how much it costs for me to produce each work mm-hmm. and then then I can always like now my work has become more streamlined and I've done that intentionally because like I was saying coming out of the school of the art institute it's like 
people are always like, you do do everything. You can do anything. And it's just like, <laughs> that was this great gift I got at this school, you know? And it's like, and it has no business model built into it at all. So it's like, it drained me because, you know, it's also from working at the Museum of Contemporary Art, I would see all these shows there and they would have like a video, a photograph, a painting, you know? And it was just because that was the curator's research. But I just thought that's what shows look like. Mm-hmm. So then when I would go to do my show, I was like, I need a f- photograph and a sound piece and this. But it was like, no, that's just... But when I was doing that still, it was like I kept a budget for each piece. But it really is a drainage because I could, you know, it was like reinventing the wheel for each thing. So it was like I would really make each work almost three times until I got it right, especially because it was such a border between design object and art they were you know and then now like once I I had stepped down from the tenure track position I was like my whole thing was like business model you know these materials are affordable it's storage like working in cloth now like I can roll it up I can store it like that's real estate I'm paying for that's real estate I'm paying for storage you know and it's and then it's also healthy. Like I'm not, you know, it's not going to damage my body to like do that work. But then you know, keeping the record of how much it costs to make each object, how much time it took you to make each object. Like you know, from Nick's studio, some of the, like the labor pieces, like it could take a month of hand sewing, mm-hmm. ten hour days. So keeping track of that and then bringing that to the table with the gallery to then make the prices because you have to make sure you're going to at least recoup your cost, production costs. You'll never recoup your time mm-hmm. that you put into it, you know, and then it's also like kind of just staying on them to like, can we push, when can we push like those prices up? But it loops back to what I was saying too, in terms of like circumstances that can, can allow for like that kind of risk taking, you know, taking debt. Like if I had student loans, I wouldn't be able to be in as much debt. Like when I won the three arts award, my credit card was $55,000. Like I remember when it peaked at like 30,000, it was like, I maxed it out and I still wasn't ready for the show. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And somehow then that day I got in the mail, like a letter, like we've opened your credit card to even more. It was like, Great, I can go into more tax, but I'm gonna be ready for the show and I hope something sells. You know, and it's um and then so when I received that reward, they were like very excited to like help financially advise me, like, what are you gonna do with it? And I was just like, I'm just gonna pay off half of my credit card, you know, but it's like because this there's so much silence around the finances, like no one ever asked where that money was, you know, or even like when I went to the White House, that was five thousand dollars to bring young people from here to there. But yeah, I mean, it is it it is it's ludicrous the cost of it all, mm-hmm. and it, and then you don't know when you're gonna get you know that check. So even doing like a consignment form, you know, is like I'm consigning these works to my gallery that I'm working with. Yes, you represent me, but this consignment is for a year. And within that, I need a check within 60 days after payment is made. But there's not always, you know, you don't have visibility to when, like, they can receive a check and they don't have to tell you. They can wait, you know, two months and then be like, oh, we just got the check from so-and-so. 
And you'll never know because there's that distance between the partnership. And that's where the power goes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you did say, though, that you'll never recoup your time, which is such a weird concept to anybody, like, in a traditional industry that gets paid for their time. Totally. Mm -hmm. Well, and even in terms of, like, a 50-50 partnership to have such a lack of transparency and so much trust, and that's where, like, word of mouth comes into play. Like, I'll artists will call me and be like, oh, what was it like working with this person? What was it like working with this person? Because it's our only kind of checks and balance to see, you know, like this is our, we're putting everything at risk here. Like, am I going to get paid? Like, do they sell work? Mm -hmm. Do they move work? Yeah. So it's, you know, those are when, to loop it back to your question about like the mentoring, like those are the things that I bring up. And even in teaching now, more I bring up about Um, like with my sculpture class like you know how is that like you have to think through like how are things sustainable like oh you can't move that by yourself okay now you're paying somebody to help you move that like to store that or um great that's awesome you want to get into bronze casting where are you going to do that when school's over you know how do you cover those fees and um just thinking kind of really practically about it um and issues of being a, a woman artist because it is still it's like 80% female students at the school mm-hmm. but when we look at the numbers if you look at any of the auctions or anything it's still yeah, men it's, it's, it's so crazy names. I kept thinking when we were talking about that earlier about that piece who was it the Gorilla Girls the big yeah. billboard yeah. where it was like I don't remember exactly what it said but like does a woman have to be nude to get into the yeah. Met mm-hmm. um, and that was made like how long ago that was like years ago and then um judy chicago just accepted a word an award recently and in her speech she basically like gave a big fuck you to the institution and was like you know thanks for this however you know mm -hmm. like women are not being represented and she gave like all the statistics and like people of color are not being represented in the gallery space or the museum space but it's interesting because we are making progress but it's so slow and it's so weird to think because this industry is known for being progressive and liberal and like you know you would think that we would not but even going back to what you said earlier of like comparing your CV with a male if they were the equivalent and you'd get paid 10,000 more and you're telling you know if you're recommending how to price your work and basing it on credentials it's like how many more do you have to have as a female artist totally totally I know and it's like it's just it's really just the fact of the matter and it is hard to look at and it's like I mean I am scared for the next 20 years of you know what that knowing that I'm, I'm, I'm going into that fade out period, what, what does that look like? What, you know, how is that avoidable? Have things changed? No, like I'm not disguised by it. My new work does have naked females and it did all sell. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so it's still really there. It's like, I mean, in the, all the other work, you know, the work that I did that was really social justice and socially engaged, it's perfect work for institutions and cultural centers, but it is not um, of much interest for acquisition into personal collections mm-hmm. because it's difficult to live with. Mm-hmm. It's difficult stories to tell. It's, you know, they're, they're back with me because nobody does want to hold them. You know, like the, the metaphor is really carried within that exists out there still is carried within the work 
or the work carries it, you know? Mm-hmm. And the new work, which is like the flip side of the coin, where it was like instead of um, pointing at so much of like disparity and, and that negative repercussions of it was trying to look at through love. So thinking about a lot with like bell hooks writing in terms of, you know, as an African-American woman within higher academia, bringing love into the conversation, bringing the word love, saying the word love, talking about it, and looking to define something that really is undefinable, but, you know, and can that be a way to help move forward? So it's a kind of even a little bit more like a Martin Luther King kind of mm-hmm. model and strategy. And so for me too, because it was, I was really sad. It was, it was really emotionally devastating, you know? I mean, even with, um, like Krishan was a young student, not a student, just a young man that I mentored that I had met in Holman Square. And he, he had served time in jail and prison. And he like, you know, it was so atrocious that he could, would kick his leg until his leg broke. So that way he could have an, a way to get out just for a couple days to go to like the doctor. I mean, insanity with like the stories that these young people have. So flipping it to love, you know, was for me was being in a biracial relationship and looking at all of the success we've made. Like here we are like laying naked together. Here we are out of the beach together. Here we are, you know, I'm moving around and it's like, it's, it's normal in this, in a way that like Carrie James Marshall was bringing normality with his images of black figures into, you know, museums that you walk in and you do see yourself you know and I was imagining okay if we had a baby and we walked into a museum like where do they see mom and dad in the same space like yes now we have images of white people paintings of white people we have paintings of black people but we don't have black and white people in the same painting so for me it was really then you know naming and honoring kind of a history of love stories that happened in fights and wars and battles that happened so that way we could be in this place of vulnerability naked together and, and beginning a conversation through love and through progress and, instead of through tragedy because the tragedy is still in there. It's like in the complications, you know, mm-hmm. and any love story are still there. Um, but they were nude and they did sell. <laughs> <laughs> we saw them at Expo. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing to see yeah. too because and we went through the names on the walls and there just weren't very many. <sighs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any recommendations for us, for the audience at large, anything to look into, anything Chicago-based that you absolutely love? Like, you are so synonymous with Chicago mm-hmm. at this point. Um, what do I love? I feel like with Chicago, it's such a tricky place because everything is here, but because it's not pretentious, Sometimes it's you think that like there's nothing here, but it's like anything you want is here and is happening, mm-hmm. you know. And it's um, any kind of tiniest niche that you want. Like if you if you did like talent shows right now, you'd be shocked to see in every single neighborhood there's monthly talent shows for young people. Mm-hmm. You know, like what you feel like talent shows are like outdated, they're out of style, but it's like they're everywhere. It's like it's a <laughs> whole like track, and these kids are like committed to it. You know. Um, I do, even though this this could sound like whatever, but um, I when I started teaching boxing at Soho House, I didn't even know what Soho House was. And then, like, as I started to learn it 
you know, that I do see that in terms of a place for diversity, even though it is like a member thing, like the ground floor is, is, you know, free and open, but I like to be in places where I see all different kinds of people and, and also where like, I feel safe, you know? So like, that's a place like I can go post up at the bar there and no one's going to come like talk to me. I can just read my book. I can be peace. Like, and then also they do so much research on finding so many creative gems in the city and they do like a lot of like female entrepreneurship workshops they do wellness workshops um they'll do even like you know focus on different um groups of people within the wellness in terms of conversations um and then it even like for music young you know they do like spoken word stuff they just really house everything together in there and they kind of for me do like a homework I think in terms of finding those so that you know, there's people go back and forth because it does have like a membership with it. And because I came into it through a different door, you know, like I didn't have, there wasn't, I was like within the home before I, I, I knew there was like a gate, but so I think that that is really, that place is really awesome. But I feel like, you know, there's just like the younger generation here is just thrives and they are, really like I think more students from SAIC are staying here Mm -hmm. um there's more like opportunities for pop-up spaces I think like streetwear and like sneaker culture is so big here Mm -hmm. um yeah does that kind of answer it yeah (laughs) no I think that's great um is there anything that you want to say like anything like like you're working toward right now that's going to show or anything like that yeah is there something people should follow like kind of a Mm -hmm. a way to like find you yeah um you know this is the first time I'm really excited about it because it's a little bit of high risk but um I've always because I've always asked for things I've always had a destination and then I work towards that point um, but that destination always like arcs an umbrella over the process because I like know where it's going and I'm, you know, it's, there's a drive, there's a stress factor, there's an audience, kind of like a market in mind that I'm moving towards. And that was really motivating and awesome. And that really kept, you know, like I had so much anxiety about never have, not having something like how I'm going to fall off the map or something. And then this is the first time that I don't have that. And it's, I feel like I'm like reversing the Chicago river and it's like, okay, I'm going to, I want to try to flow this way. Like what happens when I give myself an allotted time without having that destination. And I want to, to take use it as an opportunity to kind of take more risks and work intuitively because I really have, I've worked so constructively coming from a design background. It was always like, I would have it all resolved in my head and then just make it. Um, But life doesn't work like that. And I think practicing that mode of thinking was closing me up on kind of the mystical mystery of life, of discovery, of finding what I didn't know was in me or expected. And I mean, I still didn't know those things, but I didn't give chance, so much chance opportunity in the making process when it was like underneath like design kind of structure so I want to um I want to just be kind of like naive in the the studio for a bit so I don't have um I'll probably do another solo show in 2021 
but so for this year and I'm not even going to post that much of it on the gram or anything because I just <laughs> I just am enjoying like privacy in it of just like you know dancing with the the mystery in there seeing what happens so that's what I would advise for people to follow is their own mystery If like us, you're feeling inspired by Cheryl, you can view her work online at CherylPope.net and find her on Instagram at Cheryl Pope. For additional content from this interview featuring photos of Cheryl, her work, and her home, visit our blog at SheMakesChicago.com, where you can also subscribe for our newsletter and submit your own content. As always, we hope you continue with us on this journey as we talk with other Chicago women on the make. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast here and follow us on social at She Makes Chicago because we want to connect with you. Okay, we did it. We did Thank it. you. <laughs> See you every time. We always end with yay. We did it. We did it. <laughs> that was amazing, though.